things that I came to realize when I taught sixth grade is that behaviors are um, language <laughs> that, you know, um, often that students don't have the, the, the verbal words for come out in the, the physical embodiments, which is another reason why I thought Courageous Conversations was so important, or ethnic studies, you know, vocabulary is so important for youngers. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. We're here today with Leah and Rena Dunbar. Uh, they are twin sisters and both educators committed to community building, listening, and undoing oppression by way of Courageous Conversations, which is inspired by a book by Glenn Singleton uh, that speaks to the development of honest discussions about race, gender, and class. Uh, Leah is currently a language arts and social studies specialist at Lane Education Service District, and Rena is a project coordinator at the University of Oregon, and I think uh, working with indigenous communities, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Welcome, yeah, in, in welcome, you two. I've been looking forward to this to this conversation for a, a, a long time, um, and um, let's start by talking about the the courageous conversations work that you that you uh, did here in in Oregon. Uh, what uh, for those who might not? I mean, it's a it's a it's a bold title. So, what was the essence of the of the of the course? Well. Um... It's a bold title, and I knew that that title would draw students into the into the classroom and into the work um, of looking at um, their own identities and the factors that shape those identities and their sense of self in the world. And actually, um, I started the class um, in collaboration with three other teachers in my former school district, um, but I was the only one that called my class Courageous Conversations because I knew that name was so powerful and it really resonated with students. Um, but really what, what was the true genesis of the class was um, a group of students of color from across the district had been convened um, for a couple years. Um, interestingly, we were part of a of a a group of schools that were part of the Minority Student Achievement Network. This was way back in the two thousands, and um, those students in our um, district who had the opportunity to participate in some youth leadership opportunities and national conferences, you know, came back from those experiences, you know, activated and ready to see the experience that they were having um, 
translated into a class experience that other students would get to have. So that was kind of the genesis of Courageous Conversations um, in the first kind of iteration. And then over the years, um, the model um, kind of morphed into an ethnic studies prototype. And that's where Rena and I really began to collaborate. Um, and she was in a middle school and I was doing the same work in high school. And we, we started to really kind of push um, to push on the, the structure of the class to have some, some distinct protocols and um, rituals and characteristics that I think came to kind of define um, courageous conversations like 10 years later, 15 years later. And so at this point, though, Rena and I are still, we're not in teaching in the district that we were in. And the class still exists in um, some several middle schools and high schools in um, in the district, though um, some of them call it courageous and some of them call it some other things. So, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we're in an un unfortunate era where it seems like um, certainly in certain parts of the country, they want conversations to be anything but courageous. Um, <laughs> yes. Maybe Rena, you can speak to. I mean, what what do you make of just where we are? I think we thought we had we had, um, you know, really uh, surpassed some of the some of the stuff that's that's rearing its head now in terms of just right? resistance to talking about race and gender and ethnicity, even being outlawed in many mm -hmm. states. Yeah, I mean, there's just hi Ed. Thanks for having us and. Um, giving us an opportunity to kind of reminisce um, on um, the genesis of this course. And also, you know, it just makes me want to reminisce on the genesis of our lives because for Leah and I, um, because we are black biracial, our mom was a um, white um, special education teacher. She passed away five years ago and our dad is um, 91 and is black that, um, you know, we were born into a world where having conversations around race um, kind of did push the boundaries in, in many cases, you know, um, um, I mean, it was almost illegal, I think, for um, our parents to get married and our parents who were teachers also didn't have their teaching licenses renewed back in the 60s when they fell in love. And so we were born in California. But because of all that, I feel like Leah and I were always having um, quote unquote courageous conversations or at least conversations around um, race and you know racialized conversations that maybe <coughs> people who um, lived in different worlds or different communities with different identities maybe weren't having. And so um, to go back to like kind of where we are in this moment, um, well, Leah and I were born in 1972, and I've come to the conclusion that I think that time actually doesn't move in a line. I think it moves in a circle, and um, there's a lot of um, maybe hopefully a spiral, actually, um, more than a circle, that there is a direction, right, the arc of justice, perhaps, but um, that that what's happening right now is a is a 
a backlash or a white lash or, um, you know, some kind of push against um, the, the growth and the movement that has happened uh, where students um, don't want, you know, students are exposed to so much more media, they know so much more, and they want their classrooms and their curriculum to reflect, um, you know, I think more, more narratives and more full, um, full coverage of um, reality and of history, certainly, um, and history and our story, um, than what they've um, been told. And so I, th I think that right now is just a kind of a, a fear moment. Um, and it's, it's probably not that surprising, um, considering, you know, what's, you know, kind of happened in history and we do kind of move in cycles, but it is disheartening in some ways. Um, yeah, I think that's all I'll yeah. say about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know that you both, um, earned your doctorates. Um, and, uh, I think, were you both in the education and methodology policy program? You yeah, we were. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah, we had to wonderful. do it together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, Leah, let's talk a little bit about um, language arts and 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 the work. I know that you um, you've adopted a, a a textbook on Black history um, that's um, that uh, is being used throughout um, Lane County, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm just curious. Um, just about the decision to do that and, and whether it's been accepted or there's been any pushback or. Um, yeah. Um, the work that, that I did and Rena did something related was around ethnic studies implementation. And so, you know, my passion is around representative curriculum histories that are inclusive um, and reflect the, the lives and the families and the experiences of our students. And so um, the Black History 365 text, um, you know, has been a really great um, experience in learning how, how um, curriculum can inform and expand um, what schools offer students. And so, you know, it's been, um, you know, an intentional implementation, which I'm, you know, very happy to say that the agency that I work with, you know, has supported and, um, and supported by, you know, providing texts um, to, to, to the rural school districts who had expressed interest in being part of this implementation. And so part of my work has been to provide professional development to teachers, um, in, in that implementation, you know, it's a pretty overwhelming textbook because, um, it, you it's know, begins in Africa. <laughs> it's basically, it's about three inches thick for people who are listening. <laughs> Um, yeah. and, um, and it's quite impressive and that actually is not even representative of what's contained in the book because it's full of QR codes, um, of all, all kinds of documents, um, both primary documents as well as articles and artifacts and music videos and all sorts of things to really, um, communicate the scale and the scope of, of, 
I mean, obviously even this text can't capture black history, you know, but it comes closer than I think most texts have done up until this point. And so it's been interesting to uh, try to support um, buildings and moving this work um, forward. And, um, you know, teachers are pretty overwhelmed and, um, but there are some, you know, there's teachers out there who want to use this textbook. We have the ethnic studies state standards in Oregon to fall back on, which is a really beautiful thing. I think that kind of speaks to your previous question as well. Um, I think for people who may not know, I think for people who may not know much about our state, you know, we don't, we don't have much diversity here. So it's, it's, it's quite a, um, a, accomplishment that (laughs) it is it is an accomplishment and you know it's really a testament to the power of student voice Mm -hmm. um you know the students who and community groups that agitated for ethnic studies standards to be developed um, and they are part of our social science um, standards that will be implemented well they're ready to implement now but they will be required um, for all classrooms across the state in 2026. And so Black History 365 is a piece of um, fulfilling the requirements of that mandate, that state mandate, um, as well as tribal history, shared history, um, which is another curricular mandate that we have in Oregon that is quite unique and situates us I think on the forefront, um, you know, in the country, um, as far as representative curriculum, in this case, developed, um, you know, with the nine federally recognized tribes. So, Rena, you, um, I know that you were involved with uh, something called the Youth Open Mic um, for Eugene um, yeah. and served as a facilitator. Um, so you and I, I, it came to me because you were, you were talking about student voice and the importance of student voice. Um, tell me about that that program and. Oh, I'm so glad you asked about that um, because um, Leah and I were both involved in that, and I actually feel like um, it might be one of the um, things that we're most proud of being involved in um, here in Eugene in terms of uh, really. Um, bringing youth across the city, or I think this is a city, um, <laughs> across the community together. So um, one of the, the strengths that Leah and I have, of course, is being a twee or being two people. That's our twin pronoun. And so I was, my first job teaching was at one high school in uh, Eugene and Leah was at the other. And so what we ended up doing was, um, organizing an um, opportunity for students to um, come and share their writing, their poetry, their songs, their raps, their art um, once a month for 10 years at a local um, restaurant that just, you know, Morning Glory, just, uh, just the hub of the community. And um, it just really grew and kids, you know, it was their space. We had um, youth MCs. And Leah and I just kind of put up the flyers and, you know, that um, the students designed every month. Yeah, it was just it actually was really student led. And um, but it was just um, really profound. In fact, 
people will still talk about, you know, they're adults now, people will st still talk about um, that community. I mean, it really just was this community building around um, art and words and empowerment and what teenagers are going through and thinking and feeling. Mm -hmm. And, and um, we had, you know, students, you know, start dating each other from across <laughs> schools and, and, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and just, and become, you know, musicians mm -hmm. and performers. And it really started there. And so um, it was called a weapon, of choice voice. And Leah's class actually started it. Now that I think about it, let me throw it back to her um, in her first um, teaching. It position. Was my, yeah. Yeah. And it actually just to date us even more. Um, the year that we started the event was 2001. And so um, it was following 9-11 and it was my first, you know, official teaching position after graduating from teacher school. And um, it was a class that was supposed to be about learning about spoken word and the students immediately um, transformed the the trajectory of the course by saying hey we want to do this we don't want to watch this we don't want to learn about this we want to we want to produce this and perform this and that's what they did um, and you know and it just continued for the next 10 years until um, the demands of family and other professional responsibilities made, organizing, which organizing is a lot, <laughs> you know, made organizing um, just one more thing, you know, that just had to had to go. But anyway, um, it was weapon of choice voice. And I think that that really um, captures um, a lot of um, our epistemology <laughs> when it comes to how we how we move through how we move through the world and and want to support um, our youth you know in doing so now you've also done work with incarcerated youth um, and that's a um, that's a population that often is forgotten um, and I'm just curious about your your work around around that I you know there's so much talk about the the uh, school to prison pipeline. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, I did a, a documentary on this subject and also have just been touched by it, you know, in, in ways that yeah. you know, hadn't, yeah. hadn't expected. And so um, I know, you know, I, to me, I, what I observe is there seems to be such a, a ease and access to um, firearms that didn't exist, not even three or four years ago. Um, that is, mm -hmm somewhat part of the problem, but then um, also just um, there's a scholar I know that we both heard about in graduate school. I can't think of her name right now, but she uses the term pushed out instead of instead mm -hmm. of dropout <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. that students often yep. through yep. disciplinary practices and things like that are sort of given the message that they don't belong. And that's that's yes. part of the equation. Yeah, yep. absolutely. <sighs> um. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, that's a yeah, there's a heaviness, obviously, you know, to that that subject, because, you know, incarcerated youth um, typically lie at the intersection of all of our our systems of oppression, you know, often. Right. Um, you know, they're marginalized. 
um, for, you know, number of reasons could be socioeconomic, it could be, you know, identity factors, race, gender, orientation, disability, disability. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I, you know, you, we live in this culture that really um, glorifies you know, power over and um, gun violent gun. Well, I won't say gun violence yet, but just guns are kind of that that metaphor in our culture for what makes you powerful. So you take, you know, youth who are the most impressionable um, and unformed <laughs> when it comes to you know making decisions that are that are that you know are. Um, I guess consequential uh, thing. Yeah. Consequential, you know, and, <laughs> and I mean, and that's who, that's who we tend to see, you know, in, in that, in populations that are juvenile justice connected. I mean, there it's either weapons or substances, right. And these are, these are, these are not intrinsic <laughs> to, to young people, I mean, these are these are uh, mm, addictions. I will say, even the you know guns are an addiction that are modeled to them um, from uh, from the society, you right. know. And so I mean, we know about just given the yeah. music and the hyper masculinity imagery yep, and exactly. everything else about you know perceptions of honor and all that stuff that that's get interpreted by undeveloped minds as as our brains as um being a a pathway um right Right. and it's not just you know the 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 young minds right Mm -hmm. when i think about educators and and how we reinforce obedience and how we yeah compliance and um you know certain behaviors are acceptable and one of the things that i came to realize when i taught sixth grade is that behaviors are um, language mm-hmm. <laughs> that you know um, um, often that students don't have the 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 verbal words for come out in the the physical um, embodiments and so um, which is another reason why I thought courageous conversations was so important or ethnic studies um, you know vocabulary um, is so important for youngers um, and to teach that and um, you know oh. Uh, you know, I, I taught at a very large comprehensive high school for a long time with um, students who were labeled at risk. And, um, you know, it just immediately opened mm-hmm. my eyes to these students have been labeled by the yeah. time they're entering ninth grade to be the outsiders yes. and, and to do to indeed be pushed out. And so um, and so I quickly realized, um, you know, for me as an educator, um, I had to figure out how to um communicate and teach my students how to communicate in the ways that would um, keep them in the classroom so that they could um, learn. And, um, but I don't, I mean, I think more teachers are realizing that now for sure, but I think that we have an entire um, education system Mm -hmm. that um, um, criminalizes our youth and and, in particular certain populations like Leo was listing before. And, um, you know, I mean, the way that we grade students, 
the way that we treat students mm-hmm. for being tardy to class criminalizes them, mm-hmm. um, right? If you don't, if the timetables aren't easy for you, you're criminalized. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so it's not just even- I still have trouble with seven times eight. My mother, my mother taught school and then she would drill me every time we were in the car. I, I'm joking, but, 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 but not really. <laughs> Just we like we internalize so much about um, who, who, belongs. who belongs and who doesn't, yeah. and what's to happen to them, and um, yeah, and we could go on on and on critiquing that. But the work that we, you know, the 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 work that I, I've done a lot of work to try to keep students in classrooms around, you know, restorative practices and things like that, and and um, trying to remove, you know, grading systems that harm. But, um, but Leah and I have, um, you know, like not on purpose, you know, we've been really close to adjudicated youth in our family and in our community. And so, um, you know, we've been, you know, kind of interested in that. And then, um, you know, we were teaching um, the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander in our Courageous Conversations classes. And, um, you know, and so certainly that um, inspired Leah and I to, you know, to want to work more with adjudicated youth, you know, and who often are the children of parents who are incarcerated um, as well. So, you know, just kind of that realization around belonging, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of is that, you know, that thread um, that or not belonging, Mm -hmm. right, Um, is, is, is a, you know, well, just shapes powerful narratives <laughs> that become, you know, self-fulfilling prophecies mm-hmm. often. Now, I know, Rena, you've taught at alternative schools, too, where there's a smaller mm-hmm. student population and, um, and perhaps a, more of an opportunity to really get to know students. I mean, I, I think that one of the structural issues with large schools, particularly secondary mm-hmm. schools, is teachers may have, you know, six or seven periods where they've all of a sudden they've, they're, they're, they're touch points with so many students, it's very hard for them to really develop a relationship with any one of them, you know, and I just don't know how we get around that just in terms of the way schools are structured. Um, but I'm just curious what the, what the difference that you've seen with smaller alternative programs. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, compassion fatigue is real. Mm-hmm. And um, the more students you have, um, the harder it is to um, care deeply and get to know them deeply. Um, you know, so I definitely, um, I, I mean, that's kind of what led me into alternative education really is, um, um, you know, having, teaching at the largest high school in Eugene and with huge classes, but, and, and not wanting to be that kind of teacher that saw my students' numbers. Um, but yeah, so I ended up going into alternative um, programs and um, loved loved it, loved it. And um, one of the um, sorry, I have a shepherd out there barking. But um, um, but thinking systemically, um, I think that we probably wouldn't have as large of classes if we didn't have so many different subject matters um, and requirements. Um, I, I just, I think that if we could restructure our, what we 
how how we're learning and what is considered important knowledge and get our, some of our students outside at different times and and um, have a more place-based type of curriculum mm -hmm. um, instead of you know math, language arts, the language, the the Science, health, the social math. studies. I yeah, mean, how yeah. can language arts and social studies be separated? How <laughs> is that even a reality? You know, it just doesn't make sense. And and there's so many things in nature that math and science. I mean, they they all go together. And so, um, you know, so so a, a restructuring is is certainly in order and i remember reading something gosh i wish i was the kind of person that could whip out the the names of um articles but i remember <laughs> that there was an article that we read some professor will be listening and they'll be like i know that article um <laughs> that was about how you know when you have students attending Say, say wealthier schools or private schools um they're not receiving the same kinds of um, learning opportunities. Yeah. Even teaching learning styles, experiences. You, you yeah. know, the way mm -hmm. that teachers teach is different. The way mm -hmm. that students are, are taught to absorb information instead of the sit and get, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, drill test stand, you know, standards, t testing, 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 that doesn't happen in the same way in schools that are in different socioeconomic, um, sectors. And, and so, uh, so there's a certain type of education that's happening mm -hmm. with these, you know, huge classrooms and, um, you know, really disengaged topics and, 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 you know, the standards being removed from, you know, experiential relevant um, types of um, opportunities for the whole classroom community. And so um, I would just restructure the whole thing. Yeah. And you know, I, it's, you in, know, in my observation um, of, of, of observing both, uh, so levels fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, it occurs to me that kids, um, particularly when they first come into middle school, there's this source, sort of still sense of innocence. And then uh, within a year or two, they start to realize uh, that, um, you know, maybe their, their pal is getting pulled out into another reading group or, you know, there's mm -hmm. this, that maybe I must not be as smart. And they start to then yep sort of collect evidence for whatever it yes. is I can't write yes. or I'm not good yes. at math or whatever else that by the time they're in the 11th or 12th grade uh, these are really rigid beliefs that are really hard to yes. um, mm -hmm. to you know to intervene with um, yeah and, and I think it's just this sort of competitive um, nature of what we set up in schools that some, you know yeah, somehow absolutely. these kids are supposed to be competing with each other as opposed to yes. learning that just doesn't oh, right. work and what do we want in our society? I mean, we want people who can work together to collectively solve problems. Like that is what is needed. And why are our children whose minds are the most flexible? <laughs> I certainly, right? Not actively engaging in the world that they live in. And they are communicating in a million different ways that they are not interested or engaged 
um, and what's going on in schools right now. In the ways that yeah. it's in, yeah, presented. You know, so, um, yeah. yeah, we have thoughts. We have thoughts around that. <laughs> I know there, there's been so many students that, you know, have come into my classroom and they're like, I don't like to learn. And I'm like, um, are you breathing? Um, you know, who taught you that you didn't like to learn? Well, our school right. systems taught right. you that. Right. And so, okay, let's work together to unlearn together. Yeah, so that right. we can get ready to learn something else that you actually are really passionate and inspired mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. because you you know you have so much to offer and mm -hmm. you know all of our students have you know so many different gifts and um you know good at so many different things and we're not supposed to be i don't think good at every single thing but you know collaborating we could maybe do some stuff together <laughs> and yeah. and as a twin leah and i oh you know maybe we're particularly aware of this because we were separated um, as young children in school and mm -hmm. we learn better together. We are co-cognators, -cog co-cognators. <laughs> we think together, we create things together. And um, I think that kids actually love to do that. And so why are we, you know, separating students and, and you saying, oh, you're cheating by, you know, asking someone a question or trying to find out the answer from them. It's like, yeah. we all find out answers from yes. each other. No we one's inventing anything Collaboration. New. Collaboration. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, we'll end it on that note. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. I'm glad we were able to do this. Uh, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Yes. Thanks. Thank you for having Take care. us. Take care. Thanks for the conversation. <laughs>Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.